Hello, welcome to North of 48. We have an incredible conversation with Philip Eitner, who resides in Ukraine, and Professor Ann Lee, who writes a column for the Daily Kos, KOS. Yeah, sadly, this is one of these things you just kind of run across in Ukraine nowadays. This is a memorial for um, some soldiers that were killed by Russians. Their bodies were held um, on the other side of the lines, and they only were renegotiated back here. And so this is a memorial service about two months after their actual deaths. Here on Kurshachik, in the main part of um, Kiev, the uh, vehicles that will take them to their final resting places are there. Uh, but in a very solemn ceremony, their memories are uh, thought about here. So, you know, uh, this isn't going to be a long little vlog, but I just ran across this, so I'd make the point. Um, all these flags here commemorate dead people coming out to lay flowers for the bodies of those soldiers recovered from the front lines that have previously been held by Russians. And it's one of the things that it's inescapable from my time in Lviv now to my time here in Kiev in the past year of conflict. The toll these people are bearing is significant, but they're undeterred. You know, this doesn't have anything to do with anything else other than I ran across this and I wanted to share it with you. People are dying here and they want this war to end, but they cannot let these deaths go in vain. Now again, they were in sirens. Slava Ukraini. Geroim Slava. No, that was uh, that was actually a powerful um, uh, two-minute uh, vlog. So Philip Eitner is with us tonight. Uh, he's a journalist based in London, but living <laughs> in Ukraine. We'll go through that. Previously, he worked for CBS News for 15 years as producer and reporter, a couple of 60-minute uh, episodes, if I recall. Mm -hmm. And since 2008, he has been a freelance for a number of news outlets um, and a regular on Tom Hartman lately, too, right? Yes. Right. So you've been a journalist working on some of the most prominent news events of the last two decades. He covered the rise to power of Putin in 2000. Following the 9-11 attacks, Philip had a major role in the coverage of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Mm -hmm. He has reported for many countries in the former Soviet Union, the Middle East, and the European Union. As a one-man band, he was embedded with the U.S. military during the invasion of Iraq. While versed in new media techniques, he reported the Russian invasion of Georgia. 
and you have covered the euro crisis the war in ukraine and the syrian refugee crisis uh, i'm honored to have you philip thank you so much for for replying back to me when i when i um uh, got a hold of you on the contact how did how did you get involved in journalism philip was this a passion of yours or did you fall into it no it was, it was something i always wanted to do uh since uh my teenage years and i pursued uh, a degree uh and received a degree in broadcast journalism from san francisco state university uh i didn't ever want to do domestic u.s uh mm -hmm. news so i uh, got involved with an exchange program uh in the uk and um moved to london after i received my diploma and uh have covered international news ever since wow well you sure fell into a quagmire i'll tell you oh yeah to report on um i i read with interest maybe the backstory on how you how you ended up in ukraine if you could you relay a, a bit of that sure i i was i'm um in 1998 i uh, uh had i was i had returned to the united states i was working as uh editor for uh, cbs radio and i got an opportunity to uh, become a reporter or take a stint as a reporter in moscow which i did that was 1998 so the tail end of the yeltsin era and the rise of the putin era uh 2001 um was the 25th anniversary of chernobyl uh and i came down to ukraine for that wow. uh, as well as the visit uh the first vi visit of a pope to ukraine uh predominantly orthodox christian uh country and in wide conflict oftentimes with uh catholicism so it was a big deal uh, the pope would arrive here and i came down here for that and uh having lived in moscow and um uh immersed in russian uh culture uh i it was striking to me the difference between russia and ukraine and um kind of uh ukraine struck me as a country that had everything that i i really liked about russia but it didn't have imperialism and it didn't have uh, schizophrenia as to its sense of self-identity. They, the Ukrainians know they're European. Uh, the Russians are, are kind of, uh, still figuring that out. Uh, are we European? Are we Asian? What are we? Are we something special? Are we unique? Uh, and then add to that mix, the imperialism of, of, of Russia. Uh, and I just, I fell in love with Ukraine and uh, was coming here regularly on vacation and um, uh, would come here just to kind of brush up my Russian language skills without having to deal with the visa process in Russia. And also the, I just preferred Ukraine to Russia. Uh, and then in 2014, when my dawn struck, uh, I was here for that. And the uprising, um, uh, the uprising of dignity that happened in 2014, it was on Maidan. And then, uh, uh, you know, was caught up in that and, and, and 
I made uh, some, you know, uh, promises to people on the Maidan that that when the eventuality of Russian invasion uh, would come, that I would return and 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 keep uh, the focus and um, try and cover uh, that eventuality uh, as best I could. Uh, so when this happened, I, I, you know, and in the interim continued to travel here, but, uh, when the invasion happened last January, or sorry, last February, uh, felt obligated, uh, from the promises I'd made on my Don to return and kind of, um, keep, keep this in people's eyes, but also to, um, you know, um, tell the Ukrainian story. So that's what motivated me. And that's why I'm here now. Okay. Well, if you don't mind, if we could talk a little bit about Maidan, uh, you were in Russia, then the revolution of dignity started. And, um, so I got a short clip from, uh, CBC news to, for the, uh, give a little background to the audience here. Maybe I'll, I'll just play it if you don't mind. Sure. All right. And then we'll bring in professor Ann Lee. Ukraine is watching itself chip apart. A truce announced last night was shattered by early this morning. Anti-government protesters determined to retake the square charged towards police. Ukraine security forces were armed and given authority to shoot, they fired back. It's not clear who was behind the attacks, but they were deadly and the results graphic. These videos appear to show snipers picking off protesters, shooting repeatedly, even as they tried to move back. The scene was cast into chaos as medics rushed to cope with multiple casualties. You see their truce? They've announced a truce, but now they throw grenades at us. This is what they mean by truce. We don't trust them. With tensions high, the government says some security forces were captured. Several police died. It's very hard to control the situation, says opposition leader Vitaly Klitschko. Now we can see that real combat has started. Even at dusk, snipers were still active. We saw a man shot in the head near the barricades rushed to an ambulance inside the square. As smoke cleared, people returned to the scorched earth square, cleaning up. New recruits have come. This woman told us she left her sick mother at home to come here. I can't stay out with all this pain. Kievians should not stay outside. We should be in the first rows. The wood stacking up will be used for flaming barricades, a nighttime defense. The paving stones, potentially lethal ammunition. But they're no match for bullets. This one, he says, is from a sniper's rifle. But there are firearms, some on both sides. After violent attempts to clear this camp, activists are rebuilding. Up until this morning, this ground was occupied by Ukraine riot police. They retreated this morning and now they're waiting back there, two barricades beyond, in a line. This is a brand new defense built by protesters in a day as they fortify their positions. Fierce fighting could flare again, so while urgent diplomacy fails to produce a political compromise, the dynamic here is getting more... That's uh, from 2014. So what happened? We'll bring in uh, Ann Lee, if you don't mind, Ann. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Other. Um, <laughs> so the rev revolution of, of dig dignity or the Maidan uprising was it was a large scale protests against the 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 government. In short, um, Yanukovych, the president of the time, was going to uh, sign a European Union contract or trade agreement and then he changed his mind because the russians offered him i think it was uh 15 billion dollars or something like that to go the russian way and uh then the protests uh happened and they were mostly peaceful until uh supposedly uh was it the baruch uh police services uh were authorized to start shooting people the boat yeah right and uh i know uh and and obviously yanukovych uh ran away they found his presidential palace was was just ostentatious uh, he's rumored to have uh rumored to take billions of dollars out of the country for his own personal use um you came you came from russia to cover this what was your your take on the situation at the time, Philip, because uh, I'm just going to paraphrase this. There's some people who think, um, especially the, the Russians, they said, no, it was the protesters who started shooting people and the protesters say no. And I know you were talking to operator Starsky, who was at the made on uh, revolution as well. Uh, so could I get your take on that please, if you don't mind? And professor, Ann, if you've got some questions after you go right ahead. Well, Maidan was uh, the Euromaidan uprising, um, despite what Russia would like you to believe, was a uh, grassroots um, uh, uprising. Um, it was uh, largely supported by Ukrainians uh, sick of being under Moscow's thumb. And it was not, I mean, this is. This is centuries in the making. This is this is uh, Ireland under British rule. This is Algeria under French rule. This is colonial uh, uh, imperialism, uh, you know, that has been fomenting for a very long time. And the history between Ukraine and Russia is really uh, it's a very um, dense uh history and the relationship between uh ukraine and russia and i mean it it we could talk uh the entire length of this podcast talking solely about the relationship between uh russia and ukraine and 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 how that uh history and that relationship has developed into where we are today but um despite what the Kremlin would have you believe uh, I firmly ha having been on Maidan and lived uh, in Ukraine and spent an awful lot of time in Ukraine that it was not, it was not um, uh, developed by foreign powers. This was, this was not the CIA. This was not MI6. Um, it was uh, Ukrainians who wanted uh, to be firmly placed in Europe and in the European family of nations because they don't have the schizophrenia of Russia. They don't have this split identity of, you know, East, West, what are we? I mean, the, the national symbol of Russia is a double-headed eagle. One head 
facing west and one head facing east. Ukraine doesn't have that uh, sense of, of confused identity. They know they're Europeans. And so they wanted to be part of the Europe. They wanted a European trade deal. Uh, and, 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 you know, Yushchenko was actually brought into power with those, with some people saying, we will support you if you agree to this European trade deal. And then when push came to shove and Putin realized that, if, okay, first a trade deal and then next, you know, tomorrow it's going to be NATO, uh, you know, or it's going to be a- actual membership in the European Union. Uh, he influenced Yushchenko to deny it with, in essence, a better, you could call it a bribe, say, um, you know, with a better, with a more um, uh, lucrative deal. He basically tried to buy uh, Ukraine. And uh, when Yushchenko uh, agreed to it and started to move towards, um, you know, cozying up with, with Putin's Kremlin, um, the people came out and it was, it was not, I mean, there may have, there may have been, I mean, I don't know, there, there may have been CIA guys running around here, MI6 guys running around here, but by and large, it was the Ukrainian people themselves who, um, who didn't want to be under Moscow's thumb anymore. And this is something that goes back centuries. I mean, Taras Shevchenko, the national poet of Ukraine, was jailed in 1846 because he wrote a poem in the Ukrainian language. I mean, this is this has been going on for a really long time. So to say it was this kind of NATO, CIA, whatever it was, um, uh, uprising is to rob the Ukrainian people of their agency. And what I saw in Maidan and what I have seen for 22, 23 years of coming to Ukraine is that the Ukrainian people want to have self-determination. They are tired of being a colony. Whether in a, And look, the, the West, Western uh, powers have um, some complicity here because they have also used Ukraine in the past as some sort of pawn in a chess game uh, of European imperial powers, Austro-Hungarian, Polish-Lithuanian, Ottoman or Russian empires. Everybody has come through. There's a reason why the etymology of the word Ukraine in in ancient Slavic language is to be broken up. U, so U is the determinative and Kren is the subject. U means in, in an ancient Slavic language, on or upon or near and crane is ledge or border or line. So it is Ukraine, on the border. And this is the border between so many different empires. And people have manipulated it and, and, and used it as a vassal state for centuries, ever since the Mongols in the 10th century sacked Ukraine. One of the fifth, it was in the top five populated uh, urban centers in Europe in the 10th century. And this is why I have Olga of Kiev on my wall behind me, because this used to be one of the most powerful nation states in Europe, um, built off of Vikings that came down the riverways and, and, and established the settlement here. And it was enormously powerful. And in the 10th century, it was sacked by the Mongols, and ever since then has tried to regain self-determination. 
and you know it's it's um in, in essence these people are seeking their own path they're see they're finally getting their hands on their own history and um you know to say it was nato expansion that drove it or whatever it was uh ultimately i contend that um we are seeing ukraine finally become its own nation again after you know after a thousand years roughly right. uh so um it's it, it, whereas we in the states uh i'm an american by birth i'm a british citizen as well but in you know whereas we had a nation between us and our colonial masters the ukrainians unfortunately had their colonial master right on their doorstep and so they have been deprived of self-determination and um sovereignty uh for a thousand years and they finally said no we're not we, we had an opportunity this is the third war for independence um in a century uh every time russia is um knocked on its back foot the ukrainians have tried to um gain sovereignty and they did it in uh at the collapse of the czarist uh, era and the bolshevik revolution they they did it in the 1930s um and early 40s with uh, the conflict between the soviet union and nazi germany and they're doing it now um and this is this is the last ukrainian war of independence this is their 1776 moment and um and they're they're going to uh they're going to get it they're they're going they will they won't stop fighting and mm -hmm. uh whether or not the west supports them or not uh they're going to be sovereign so in 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 short <laughs> although not so short i can get on my spots that's that's what i see happen and what i saw happen on my dawn and what i'm seeing happening here now right right the the people that you um uh, met during the maidan revolution um can you talk a little bit about them um sure if if you don't yeah. mind so you came from russia uh and well then... i was i was in russia uh i was working at the time i was working for al jazeera and uh they sent me to moscow to deal with uh or to to talk about uh what was happening in ukraine from that side of the equation and so i was in moscow uh, <coughs> through much of the maidan and uh when there was a journalist who was here working for al jazeera and then she went to crimea oh. uh and they moved me down from moscow it was it was you know a, a basically a, a moving you know uh it was um uh you know kind of um shuffling chairs uh she went out to crimea so somebody had to be in 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 uh kiev and uh, I was in Moscow, so somebody had to replace me in Moscow. So I came down to Kiev. She went out to Ukraine. Somebody else went to Moscow. Anyhow, um, I, I arrived in Moscow the day that Yushchenko fled uh, for Rostov. Uh, I missed I missed the uh, the the exchange the fire exchange between snipers, but I was here on the ground and I was able to talk to. Um, people who had come i mean i had little old grannies uh you know who had come from surrounding areas around kiev with you know uh the fixings for soup 
to give to kids who mm. were on the barricades, you know, throwing bricks at the uh, security officials. Um, and they were here because they wanted a free Ukraine. I had two Ukrainian, two uh, really uh, emotional moment that I still recall and still guides my decision making was, you know, two Ukrainian grandmothers who were in their 80s um, approached me uh, one night when I was on my dawn and just begged me not to forget Ukraine because they they were saying, you know, we have been betrayed by the West before we have been we have been ignored. We have been forgotten, um, you know, and they begged me with you know tears in their eyes not to forget Ukraine. And so it was a deeply emotional moment. And I I feel in many ways obligated to keep covering Ukraine because um, the people on the Maidan uh, were, were really drawing a line in the sand and saying, we're not going to be, we're not going to be a, a Russian vassal state anymore. Um, and if you know the history of Ukraine, it is centuries of abuse by Moscow, centuries of um, denying Ukrainian culture, art, language, uh, identity, and they they finally have said enough. And on Maidan, um, you know, they they repeatedly people were begging me not to let this be forgotten uh, when the eventual war came. They thought it was going to be earlier than maybe eight years, but um, you know, they everybody knew the Russians were going to come for Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is the crown jewel in Russians, Russia's imperial crowd. And it is it is definitive for the Russians as to their sense of self-identity, which is why they're so um, determined not to let Ukraine go. Well, Philip, so I, would, um, I, I think uh, you do uh, those ladies justice uh, with the way you uh, talk about Ukraine and the history and on the various... Uh, podcasts and youtube shows that you go on and and mainstream so well done and sorry you got a question oh yeah i i just wanted to thank philip for for the time he's uh on uh, uh tom hartman i appreciate that it's really important to have a kind of live uh you know reporting from 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 there that is not quite uh so mainstream i, I guess i if i was going to ask questions it would be i i write a little um ukraine uh, blog thing at uh every day uh since the war started and i you know i'm not a a, a scholar in that area but it w my interest is is the disinformation that i have to wade through every day that rewrites the history of maidan it 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 aside from the you know more explicit just simply you know racist and and whatever fascist stuff it is this kind of um revising uh the sort of retroactive rewriting or kind of revisionism of that history and since you were there I, i'm i'd appreciate sort of your your thoughts on how the story has been altered over the time that you've been there that is the rewriting of that history um uh, i say that because uh in the former uh a version of this uh of, of a podcast that i used to be on um, I would always run into tankies who were telling me uh, that the CIA did it and uh, uh, 
um, you know, that it was America who that that caused my, you know, that that the agents, as you say, the agency of of the people of Ukraine has been lost in the context of this kind of uh, 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 global politics and and its media. So I really appreciate your sense of how these how this story keeps constantly being rewritten, even even to this day. Yeah, it's a great question, Anne, and it's one of the greatest frustrations of of what I do here, and it it drives me to distraction because it does remove agency from the people of Ukraine and Ukrainian um, identity, um, the, and the Russians are very good at it. Oh my goodness, they they study more than anybody else. They study America. They study the West. Uh, the Russians do. They study, in particular, the Americans. They know exactly how to manipulate um, uh, the narrative. Uh, they're extremely good at it. Uh, I would argue even better in some ways than you know the CIA, the FSB are masters at at manipulating information and um, creating a narrative. The, the the long and short of it is, the Ukrainian people want independence. They want their own future. They want to determine their own future, free from control from Moscow, certainly free from control from Moscow. But make no mistake about it, they will not take instruction from Washington or from Brussels either. Having been a colonial power, they will not you know, bend the knee uh, to any other imperial or, you know, other, you know, uh, power. They're just, they're not going down that road, which is, you know, something both Brussels and uh, Washington need to acknowledge. And, and and to be fair to Washington in particular, uh, Brussels is a little bit more tricky. Uh, Berlin is a little bit more tricky. Uh, London has its own agenda. Um, and they're all kind of playing games. I'd say games. They're all they're all exerting, they're all pursuing their interests. But what, what they need to understand from Kiev is that Kiev will never be a colonial power again. And that's why we see things like um, Washington giving, you know, the NATO giving weapons to uh, Ukraine and saying, use it in this way or use it in that way. Well, they take it under consideration. But at the end of the day, um, they're, they're not going to be a vassal state of anybody um the the battle over, over bakhmut i mean we know for a fact that the pentagon urged the ukrainians not to stand their ground in bakhmut and and they have been doing that uh by their own you know decision uh it's the what frustrates me more than anything else is the idea that the ukrainians don't have agency and that they that they are that they're just a puppet state of the West. That's what Moscow would love you to believe, and it's not true. It's not true at all. Um, the idea that the place is filled with Nazis and that narrative, um, you know, that is clearly a uh, a Moscow GRU FSB narrative mm-hmm. that's being sold. Um, and it's, it's just simply not true. It's, I mean, there are, 
there are far right elements. But what 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 the Russians have done, like okay, let's take for example the the fact that Ukrainians um, there is a there is legitimately a very strong movement of Ukrainian nationalists internally within Ukraine. But I would argue that Ukrainian nationalism today is more akin to Irish nationalism in say in the nineteenth the beginning of the nineteenth nineteen hundreds, twentieth century, um, than it does uh, the national socialist movement in Germany. When they when Ukrainians say I am a Ukrainian nationalist, which all alarm bells go off all over the place to an English uh, speaking ear when you hear I'm a Ukrainian nationalist. Ukrainian nationalist means I believe that there should be a nation state called Ukraine, which has been deprived them for centuries, at least five, if not ten. So what they say when they say I am a Ukrainian nationalist, it means I believe that I deserve to live in my own nation called Ukraine. Um, and 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 the Russians know how that sounds to an American ear or an English speaking ear, so they play it up. Oh, these nationalists! Look at these nationalists with all these kind of pseudo-fascist symbology, which I'm not comfortable with either. But we can go into it if, if people want to discuss it. Oh. That goes that goes back, you know, to to kind of Viking iconography. Right. Right. But, well, let me let me. Yeah, sorry. Let Go me ahead. interrupt it for a second and and follow up on that. It is a big question of mine when I when I look at daily disinformation that uses maps. For example, I have an interest in maps. Um, they show the language divisions in Ukraine and try to argue. And I I say I don't agree with it. I think they, you know, they they give you a map that says so many people speak Russian mainly. Well, I see uh, Ukraine more. You know, it, there there is a multilingual quality. It's a bilingualism. Everyone runs fluidly, like Zelensky, between Russian and Ukrainian. And if you could speak for a bit about how you perceive the the kind of fluidity, the the kind of uh, double coding, as it were, of uh, how a Ukrainian works with the Russian language or culture. As because it's there, it's there in the history, but it, it's clear that there is a you know you see yourself as a Ukrainian first, and you have to sort of uh, work work with this the fact that you encounter the Russian language in your daily life. So if you could give me a sense of that, it's very clear. I know that from a voting point of view, when it, in ninety one and in and uh, uh, even when Zelensky was was elected, that. It was a Ukrainian view, and not and there was no Russian a, a, at all within that particular context. So, if you give me a sense of that, uh, because it's the same problem, of course, in in more or less seriously in in the differences, for example, in Canada or even in the U.S. with Spanish, the the the, the bilingualism issue. I'm sorry, I, I took so much <coughs> yeah, time no, asking I, that question. No, 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 absolutely. I mean. I'm a Russian speaker. I don't speak Ukrainian. Uh, and I have never had a real problem. I've had a couple of instances where people have kind of jokingly said to me as a foreigner, I would rather talk to you in English than speak with you in, in Russian. Um, um, but nobody, nobody has ever said to me, 
you know, I refuse to speak to you in Russian or, uh, you know, take a militant attitude towards the language here. This is another instance, I believe, of Russia using um, or trying to push uh, a narrative where, oh, the poor Russian speakers. Well, you know what? Uh, you know, that that's. It's not, in my mind, to my experience, and I have been out in Donbass, and I've been out in the east of the country, um, the, that's, not, that's not an issue that people are willing to pick up arms about. Let's just say that. Um, there is a, yes, there is a kind of a sense of like, we're going to talk, we're going to speak Ukrainian in all official uh capacity uh whether it's government or the lingua franca you know that we're we're going to teach in ukrainian in uh in 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 uh, uh ukrainian uh public schools private schools you can have uh, a russian private school there's nothing obstructing you there is no law outlawing uh russian much as moscow would like you to have you believe um it's the the language i mean yeah the language issue is so fluid where it, i've been a participant in conversations where one person is speaking ukrainian answered by another person speaking in russian who then you know asks a question in russian and is answered in ukrainian it's very fluid and it's not contentious the, and to say that you know, there are Russians, ethnic Russians who speak Russian in the Donbass. And so that's why we have to come and protect them. So goes the narrative from Vladimir Putin. Um, that's not the case. They're not, they're not being, uh, Russian and Russian identity is not being suppressed. It's part of the cultural makeup of mm -hmm. Ukraine. And Ukraine is multicultural because it goes back to the idea of this having been a pawn that has been moved on a chessboard by various imperial powers throughout its history. So there are Turks uh, here, there are Poles, there are Germans, there are Russians, of course. Um, there are, you know, people who identify as indigenous, you know, Ukrainian. This has been a place that has been moved between empires throughout its history, certainly the last thousand years. And because of that, they they are multicultural. They're more multicultural, I would argue, than Russia, which is, you know, Russia is a, a federation of nation states brought under uh, Moscow's umbrella. 22 different, uh, you know, republics are part, make up the Russian federation. But Moscow is the supremacy. It is, it is you know, it, it's the dominant factor. Because it is a conquering empire, so you are forced to adapt to Moscow. Kiev has a completely different history, which has been a history where powers have moved in and out and shifted, and you know ethnic groups have moved in, ethnic groups have been you know have been more uh, powerful, less powerful, but they have been integrated into a multicultural system where no one single um, ethnic group has has really taken the dominance that we see in the in the Russian Federation with Moscow so they're okay with okay if you're if you're a Tatar and you're a Muslim 
um, if you're Jewish, if you're a native Ukrainian speaker, if you're a Pole out in the West, if you're uh, you have uh, Romanian roots in Ivan Frankivsk uh, in in the Caucasus. Or, I'm sorry, in the uh, uh, in, in the uh, Carpathian Mountains. All if you're Odessan, if you're this makes up the tapestry of Ukraine because there was there was always a dominant imperial power maneuvering things. So the the sub the 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 the, the, the ethnic group. Was always, you know, there was there was a mix here in Ukraine as opposed to in Russia, with Russian dominance uh, to all the different republics. It was a very different sort of sort of um, composite group. So there more, there really are. Ukraine is a is a multi is a genuine multicultural society, and um, language is just one of the aspects to that. But it's. Um, it's it's certainly not fascist, and it's certainly not Ukraine. The Ukrainian language is not pushed on other people. It's just the lingua franca um, of a multicultural. Country. Oh no, it so does. I don't know it, if that it, it's question, exactly the same issue this. about whether English is the lingua franca of of India or or yeah uh, or Ireland. Ireland. Is Ireland. A why do they know? You know, if you're an Irish citizen, you're more likely to speak English than you are to speak Celtic, and that's a legacy. And that's a legacy of empire. Um, and and why Russian is also a lingua franca here in Ukraine is a legacy of empire, but it's not definitive. And you know, anyhow, so so much of this war is about the fact that Russia is having a really difficult time. Um, coming to terms with the fact that their empire is dying. Yes. And and one hopes that it will, you know, die with Putin in that sense. 